Hello and welcome to episode 78 of Foreign Correspondence, a podcast that brings you interviews with journalists around the world. I'm Jake Spring, a foreign correspondent with 12 years experience in Brazil and China. I realize it's been two months since the last episode. I somehow managed to get pretty sick twice in that span of time, which made it even more difficult than usual to find the six to eight hours outside work and other obligations to produce an episode. Thank you to regular listeners for your patience. I hope this episode will have been worth the wait, as it's chock full of killer anecdotes. I spoke to David Luno, the UK bureau chief of the Wall Street Journal. David has been on my radar as a potential guest well before his latest job in the UK. Previously, he worked for decades for the Wall Street Journal in Mexico City. Most recently, he was Latin America bureau chief there. He's witnessed a lot of stuff in his long career, from Panama to Iraq to the Arab Spring. He tells a hilarious story about Scottish soccer, and also probably one of the most disturbing stories I've ever heard on the podcast about a kidnapping ring in Mexico. We really cover a lot of ground. But if I had to highlight only one thing, I would say it's David's incisive analysis of Mexico. He was born there to American parents and has spent most of his life there. I learned things I never knew about free trade, Mexican history, and how much the country's attitude toward the U.S. has shifted in the past 50 years. His depth of knowledge on Mexico is really on another level from most correspondents I speak to. So now, without further ado, here's my conversation with David Luno, the UK Bureau Chief at the Wall Street Journal. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast, David. It's a pleasure to be here. To warm up a little bit, if you could set the scene Tell us a little bit about your surroundings, both the physical space around you and where you are geographically, and if you could give us a little taste of what the past week of work has been like for you. Yeah, well, I'm in, uh, I'm in a study uh, surrounded by books in an old Victorian home in Sevenoaks, which is a small town in Kent. It's a 24-minute direct train ride to London, where I take the train and, and, and work at the journal offices there. Kent is a very sort of bucolic, it's called the Garden of England, so it's very green. Sevenoaks is a great little town, has England's oldest cricket ground that's in continuous use. It's got a great school where my kids go to. So all in all, pretty good setup. I mean, we bought this house that is... Uh, is old and sort of falling apart, but it has uh, lots of character, I guess you could say. Cracks everywhere and big high ceilings, so it's a, it's a fun place to live. We're hoping to fix it up a little more. Although an American colleague once told me, don't, don't try to make homes in England perfect because you'll spend all of your money. <laughs> um, so I've decided to, to embrace the quirkiness. Sure. And my last week of work has been... Um, a lot of fun. I'm really enjoying the job these days. I had published a story about 10 days ago on the university system in the UK. Basically, they have the opposite problem than the US and the US tuition fees keep rising ever higher in sort of an arms race by uh, colleges and universities for the best facilities and uh, sort of attracting the best students around. Uh, here in the UK, the government sets tuition and they haven't allowed it to rise for the last 10 years. So hmm. that price cap is causing all kinds of problems in the higher education system. So it was, it was just really interesting for me to get to know, uh, you know, visited Cambridge. My wife went to Cambridge, so I was familiar with it, but it was really interesting to get to know how the British universities work. And so I really enjoyed doing that. 
And now we're publishing a story on how weak Europe's militaries have gotten since the end of the Cold War. And now that Russia is on the march, so to speak, even though the Ukrainians are, are, have been doing a noble job sort of holding them up, the Europeans have now been caught sort of with their pants down. Uh, this has become sort of germane again, because now that the U.S. Uh, is sort of having a debate about whether to continue to support Ukraine, if the U.S. does withdraw its support, then uh, you sort of look back to Europe and you say, well, you know, what has Europe actually got in terms of military hardware? And the answer is not a lot. Um, so there would be very little to help the Ukrainians and there would be very little to help themselves were Russia to rearm and, and keep going, as it were. One of my uh, insights as I was reporting the story was suddenly thinking, you know, Europe was the world's most important military power by orders of magnitude from the early 1500s to, you could put it at 1942, when maybe the US and the Soviet Union overtook them. But this is a, a continent that had clear military superiority for five and a half centuries. And how far they've sort of fallen is pretty shocking. Uh, they've really let, due to budget cuts um, and the peace dividend, they've really let their militaries wither, um, turn them into sort of expeditionary forces rather than armies that could fight a ground war of the kind we're seeing in Ukraine. And so, of course, they relied on sort of the idea that there wouldn't be another ground war in Europe and that the Americans would be there. But if those two things, if those two assumptions are proven to be false, they're, they're in some trouble. So, you know, it's a story like that that's just hugely fun for me to learn about, to interview generals, to put together numbers on military capacity. So I had a ball this week. We filed the story on Friday and, and hopefully it runs soon. Great, great. Yeah, that should be out by the time uh, this is edited and up. So I'll look for links to both those stories. Those give a good taste of the the range from, you know, higher education to to military, a lot of different topics you're tackling. Are you, And before we, we get into the story of your career, I'm, I am just curious, as UK bureau chief, do you find yourself also writing a lot about Europe or is it UK really dominates all your time? I do write a lot about Europe. Uh, in fact, we sort of, I think the idea a little bit at the journal is that, you know, you may sort of have a country, but you sort of try to roam as broadly as you can. So, you know, Americans aren't going to want to read a lot of stories about France or the UK itself or Germany itself. But when you can start to put Europe in a bigger context, things get a little more interesting. So, you know, one of the things I'm looking at quite a bit is demographics. I mean, Europe is, is aging faster than other parts of the world. And that's going to have a lot of consequences. And it's going to be sort of a leading indicator of what's going to happen in the U.S. a few years on. So I think it's something that American readers will be interested in. You know, Europe's economies are generally struggling. The German economy is not doing very well in particular. And so it's, you know, I think we try to connect the dots as broadly as possible. Obviously, when there's specific news, you know, you can pull off a U.K. story. I mean, We'll talk about this, but when I arrived, uh, you know, pretty much soon after the Queen died, so that was obviously a big story. Oh yeah, uh, but uh, but we do like to try to cast a wide net, and I think those stories tend to do better readership-wise than ones that are more focused on individual countries. That makes sense. Cool. Well, uh, we'll talk a bit more about what you do now later on in the show, but we usually like to start getting an idea of how you got to the, where you are today at the very beginning. So. I like to ask where you were born, if you could tell us just a little bit about what growing up was like, and if anything planted the seed of interest in journalism early on for you. 
Yeah, well, I was born and raised in Mexico City to uh, American parents. My dad is from New York and my mom was from Boston. Dad likes to joke that he took a wrong left turn in San Antonio and spent the rest of his life in Mexico, um, <laughs> which isn't too far from the truth. He, he went down with an advertising agency in 1965, and my oldest brother was born in New York. My elder brother was born in Mexico, and I was born in Mexico in 1968. I was born a few days before Mexico hosted the Olympics, and about a week after it had a sort of a student democracy uprising and the army killed about 300 and something people. So it was sort of Mexico's version of Tiananmen Square. You know, 68 was a pretty wild year to be born. And then, you know, growing up in Mexico in the 70s, the more the older I've gotten, the more I've realized that that experience set me on a path to journalism and also sort of, I think, in many ways shaped what I've done becoming a journalist and the kinds of things that interest me. So you know, Mexico is obviously a developing world country. Back then, it had a single party state, so there was no democracy. Um, we're talking sort of 100% of the votes for the president kind of deal. <laughs> and I remember growing up and thinking how ridiculous it was that Mexicans didn't get to pick their leaders. I also remember Mexico's economic upheavals. As an eight-year-old in 1976, I came down to breakfast one day and learned that my dad had lost half his money because the Mexican peso had suddenly devalued against the dollar and lost half its value. Oh, wow. And so, you know, my poor dad swore he'd never save in pesos again, so he opened a dollar bank account in Mexico. But then 1982 came and oil prices fell and the government got into trouble again. And so everybody started pulling out their money, all the rich Mexicans, and so the president nationalized the banking system. So my dad's dollars got turned into Mex dollars. Um, so they basically seized uh, foreign assets in their banking system and devalued them and, and kept the dollars. So my dad once again lost half of everything he had, he had built up. He had a small publishing company that published a guidebook in English for American tourists, uh, English-speaking tourists visiting Mexico. So. You know, as kids, we went to Acapulco a lot and saw I saw Cancun with two hotels and um, Ixtapa and a lot of resorts. So it was, it was a fun childhood. And so, you know, it was also a time of the Cold War. And I loved sort of spy fiction, Robert Ludlum. There was a book called Falcon and the Snowman that was based on the Cold War in Mexico. It's a true story of these two American spies. And I remember going by the Soviet embassy. It was this huge sort of Gothic building and my dad's office was right near there. So I used to love going to visit my dad's office and then convincing him to take me to an East German restaurant that was right behind the Soviet embassy. <laughs> and uh, I loved going to this place because you could just tell sort of which guys were the KGB agents. And they all ate there. So to me, it was a real thrill to go there and think, wow, those guys are like communist spies. And, you know, they're the bad guys. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, I, I, I sort of recognized it later on in my career as a journalist, that a lot of these things that got me interested in journalism sort of come from my childhood. And then I think they've sort of shaped the way I think about things. I mean, growing up without democracy and in a closed economy is a bit like growing up in communism. You never forget it. So, you know, I didn't understand as a kid what was going on, but I, I knew it didn't feel right. And journalism, as well as sort of studying economics, kind of gave me the tools to understand the place that I grew up. And I feel like that combination of my background in journalism and economics has sort of given me an advantage in journalism. I mean, I think a lot of 
Western journalists grow up without questioning that their countries would always be democracies. And we're learning now that this isn't a God-given right. You know, you have to protect it and nurture the institutions that sustain it, from political parties to the media to the judiciary. And on the economy side, it sort of gave me a deeply rooted appreciation of the benefits of trade. I remember as a kid going to the store and we had three choices of cereal. They were all Kellogg's. It was Rice Krispies, Corn Flakes, and uh, Dulce Real de Trigo, this other sort of sweet cereal. And that was it. They let in some foreign cars, but only the ones that were made in Mexico. So it was a very limited choice. Um, and Mexico made pretty much everything else. So our TV set was called a Sonda. And the joke in Mexico was that it made a great radio. Uh, <laughs> So the way I came to look at it as a kid was sort of through soccer. I realized that a closed economy is like having a local soccer team that only ever plays games with other kids in its neighborhood. So it never really has a chance to compete against other really good teams and see how it can improve. It never measures itself against better teams from other cities and countries, so it won't grow. And, you know, nowadays it's very in vogue to sort of bash free trade and people focus a lot on the negatives of trade. We've seen since Trump on in the U.S. And, and a lot of other places sort of a backsliding on trade. And it's true. You know, trade didn't solve all problems. There were some people left behind. But I think a lot of people underestimate and are forgetting just how much trade has helped the world. So, you know, I would say another thing growing up in Mexico that sort of affected the way I see things is growing up in a country with such stark inequality, you know, division between rich and poor. Mexico is one of the most unequal countries in the world. So as I've gotten older and I've seen inequality in the U.S. grow, it's got me very worried because inequality in and of itself isn't a problem, but it can get so big. I mean, you want a certain level of inequality. You want different outcomes to reward people for risk-taking, for hard work, etc. But inequality can become so big that it ultimately leads to inequality of opportunity. And that's where sort of social and economic mobility start to break down. And it goes to the heart of the American dream, which is the idea that, you know, no matter what conditions you're born into, if you work hard and you put your you know, nose to the grindstone, you'll make it. And I think that's less true now than it was in the past. Um, and a lot of privilege is being inherited. So, you know, it worries me. In a way, I sort of because of my background in Latin America, I was not at all surprised when sort of what I call the Latin Americanization of American politics started to happen. I mean, when people feel they can't get ahead, they get frustrated. They start looking for answers. And sooner or later, somebody's going to cash in on that. And usually it's a populist, a demagogue who will say, I have the answers and I can't tell you how shocked I was hearing the first Republican convention in 2016 when Trump said, only I can fix this. You know, the man on the horse, the strong man, the guy coming in to save everything because the institutions are no longer any good. And he discredits the institutions so that the person has to be the savior. And that's Latin American politics um, for the last 200 years. So uh, it's very familiar to those of us who are in Latin America in fact, I wrote a story at the time comparing Trump to the Latin American Caudillos. And um, I'm very proud of that story because it, I think it's very much stood the test of time. So, you know, anyhow, sort of that's a long and rambling explanation of why Mexico kind of shaped me growing up there. Just to quickly run through the rest, I went to boarding school in California for 10th grade because the 
Mexican peso was in such bad shape and the economy's bad shape. My parents were worried Mexico was going to have a revolution. And then my mom moved up to San Antonio, Texas, and I finished up high school at a public high school in San Antonio. And while there, I worked on the uh, high school newspaper, the Alamo Heights Hoofprint. <laughs> our, our, our school mascot was the mules, uh, which I thought was kind of a hilarious choice for a mascot. So the, the school newspaper was called the Hoofprint. And met some good friends there, really liked it. The journalism teacher was lovely, Mrs. Norman. When I, years later, joined the journal, I got a really nice email from her saying how proud she was. Oh, that's nice. Which was lovely. And um, actually won some state awards uh, in some state journalism competitions. And then went to uh, the College of William and Mary in Virginia. And uh, for lack of any other ideas, I studied economics because I, I come from very much a family where, you know, study business, son. It's, it's kind of like the plastics. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> so I studied economics. And there, I enjoyed economics. I, I, I do like it. I'm glad I studied it. But when I got to econometrics my senior year, the class finished the first class, and I hadn't understood a thing. So I realized I was in over my head on the math side of economics. So turns out I had had sufficient credits to graduate with my degree. So I dropped econometrics and went over and took modern poetry at the English department. And that class, in a way, kind of changed my life because I fell in love with William Butler Yeats and some of the modern poets and thought, gosh, you know, I do like writing very much. There was a lovely English department professor who said, you know, you're a senior? Well, where have you been the last three years? And I said, well, I was over in the Morton building studying economics. <laughs> and he said, well, you know, son, you were in the wrong department, um, which was encouraging to hear. So so after I graduated, I had no clue what to do with my life. It was in 1990 and the recession was starting to bite. Just just out of curiosity, because uh, I didn't, I had no idea you you were born and grew up in Mexico. Did you feel equally at home in Mexico versus in the U.S. after, you know, moving there when you're 14, 15, it sounds like? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, uh, it's funny because now I do, but growing up, I didn't. And, you know, I'll tell you a story. When I worked in Mexico at the Journal, some years I got to know one of the Mexican presidents, uh, who's sort of infamous because he presided over quite a corrupt administration. And uh, the, the peso blew up shortly after his watch. Carlos Salinas, he was the president that took Mexico into NAFTA. Incredibly smart guy, quite cynical, maybe in some ways quite sinister, but very, very clever. And we had lunch one time and I told him, you know, I have to tell you something, Mr. President. I grew up in Mexico and I never felt that welcome. Um, and he said, well, why not? And I said, well, because, you know, as a gringo growing up in Mexico, this was a very anti-American country in the 70s. And it's true. I mean, the the school curriculums were were sort of full of uh, why Mexico's problems were sort of caused by the U.S. I mean, I think Mexico for the first sort of, you know, 100 years of its uh, of its life blamed Spain and then, well, the first 30, 40 years blamed Spain and then after that blamed the Americans. And um, so it was quite a, an anti-American place. Again, closed economy, single party state. It was a place I didn't understand very well. I didn't feel all that welcome. My family maybe didn't integrate enough. I mean, we spoke English at home. We watched Cablevision, which gave us American networks. You know, we took our holidays in the States. So I sort of grew up thinking that the U.S. was sort of this land of milk and honey and that, that Mexico was a basket case. <laughs> but, you know, as I got older, of course, I started to appreciate Mexico, which is why going later in my career, I spent so much time there. But when, when I was with this president, Salinas, I said, you know, 
you changed Mexico's sort of anti-American ethic by telling Mexico that the United States was its greatest opportunity instead of its greatest threat. And it, it, to me, it's a testament of what political leadership can do because he set the tone at the highest level. He got Mexico to sign a free trade deal with the U.S., which, you know, a lot of people forget, but that was the first time that a rich country and a developing country had ever signed a free trade agreement. So it was really historic. It ultimately sort of transformed the Mexican economy for the better. It didn't solve all of Mexico's problems, but it helped a lot. It created a, a, a big middle class for the first time. And I said, so I just wanted to thank you because now that I'm older, my two kids have been born here. I ended up marrying a woman who was also born and raised in Mexico, but in her case to English parents as opposed to American parents. And so I said, you know, we sit comfortably now with all three cultures in our house. We drink tea, uh, we watch baseball, and we eat tacos. <laughs> and he roared. And I said, so I just wanted to thank you for doing that because I really think you've, you've made this country feel like home to me. And, you know, even if I may move away someday, you know, I'll probably retire here and I'll always now consider myself a Mexican as well as an American. And he was really touched. He said, you know, I never thought about the effect it would have on Americans in Mexico. But, you know, it's really interesting to, to hear that. So. So, yeah, I mean, to answer your question, I didn't feel very Mexican growing up. I felt uh, like a fish out of water. You know, it's sort of the way a lot of us sort of multinational kids feel, I think, in our lives. We never fully belong anywhere. I'm not 100% comfortable in the U.S. There are things about the U.S. that I don't understand or values I don't share. England as well. You know, there's no perfect place. You realize every country has its sort of pluses and minuses. Um, so, you know, being a kid of globalization has its real advantages. And, and yes, it can have its downsides and not feeling necessarily rooted in, in one place. Sure. That's very interesting. And I was curious, yeah, how it informed what you were, you graduate from college. And so you weren't rushing to go back to Mexico or anything. No, um, I was sort of expecting to stay in the States. And like I said, I didn't know what to do. So I bought this book called What Color Is My Parachute? It's a sort of book about finding out what you might want to do. And it's actually, it was really helpful. I, I went through all the exercises and you put all the things you'd like to do. I mean, they ask you things like, well, you know, do you like being outside or do you like being inside? Do you like talking to people or are you more of an introvert? And so I filled out the whole thing and it basically spat out number one, journalism, you know, because I love to travel and I love learning new things and cultures. And number two, diplomacy. And uh, so I thought, well, of those two, gosh, journalism sounds pretty good. And, and the next day I picked up a copy of The Economist they had a story, I remember, about American politics, and the story started with a poem from Yeats, my favorite poet. And, you know, and it was a small story, but it used poetry to get into politics and, and sort of summed up America. It was well written. And I thought, yeah, that's what I want to do. So I tried getting jobs in the States. It was hard. And I was in Texas trying to get a job at the San Antonio newspapers. And uh, I talked to my dad and he said, well, why don't you come down here? You know, there's this English language newspaper, The News, and they're always, they'll hire anybody. <laughs> so <laughs> I said, well, geez, that's not a bad idea. So I got on the bus, uh, stayed at my dad's house, got a job at The News. And it was sort of, you know, The News, other guests may have described it, but it was sort of an island of misfit toys. It was a place where English speaking journalists from around the world would go sort of cut their teeth and learn their trade. 
we had a cast of colorful characters there that was a Canadian professional wrestler who was very famous <laughs> in Mexico for his wrestling. He was our sports editor. You know, we had a former San Francisco cop who was one of our editors, a lot of Brits, a Scottish guy, some Mexicans, some, some Yanks. So it was a really fun mix of kids. And it was owned by a wealthy Mexican family, a Mexican-Irish family called the O'Farrells. And uh, they were very close to the ruling party. And this was still in the days before Mexico was a democracy. So, you know, every time we actually got halfway good at writing something decent (laughs) about politics, they would shut us down and say, we're not allowed to write about politics for the next three months. So we would sort of get outraged and go have a tequila across the street and talk about how unfair it was and then just sort of carry on. So worked at the news for a few years. And then um, got a job stringing for Reuters as their man in Panama in 1994. Oh, wow. And that was a great gig. Uh, I mean, all hell started breaking loose in Mexico in 94. So I was a bit sorry that I left Mexico. But I really enjoyed sort of having this little thief to become a better journalist. I've always been thankful to Reuters because I feel like it's a great training ground. And you learn not only breaking news, but how to become financially literate in journalism as well, which is always important. So there were a couple big events that year. There was a Cuban boat crisis. So the Clinton administration, instead of just accepting Cubans, which had been the policy for the whole Cold War, started turning them away. And so they ended up taking them to Panama, to American military bases. And there were about 35,000 Cubans um, on the American military bases in Panama when I was there. So that became a big story. And the Cubans eventually got tired of waiting. They rioted. There were about 230 injured American soldiers. So it was a It was a big story for for a person sort of starting out in their career. I enjoyed it. And then in December 1994, Mexico devalued the peso. And I remember seeing the alert on my Reuters terminal. And I called my boss at the time and I said, you know, you guys need to call this a devaluation because they were saying that Mexico had expanded the band within which the peso was allowed to trade. (laughs) And I was like, come on, man, that's not expanding the band, that's a devaluation. (laughs) Uh, And I've seen this before. I saw this as a kid and all hell's going to break loose. And by the way, I told my boss I studied economics. So after about two days, he was like, yeah, 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 David, that's great. That's great. (laughs) And after about two days, he called me and said, how fast can you get here? So I packed up my things and I never returned to Panama. I went, went back sort of two months later to, to close up the apartment, get the rest of my stuff and move to Mexico. And I helped Reuters cover the whole financial implosion of the tequila crisis. And that was just, you know, an incredible learning experience. I mean, that was really the first modern financial crisis where the markets were moving so fast and, and money was moving so fast you know, it set the stage for what then happened across Asia, in Argentina, in Brazil, in Russia, and countless other financial crises where investors could pull just huge amounts of money in a very short period of time and lead to balance payments crises in these different countries. So it was, it was a real education. In a way, I kind of relearned the economics that I had studied in college by actually watching this stuff in real time working for Reuters. So it was a great, it was great education. And then in 1998, my former Reuters boss had moved back to the UK and he was the head of the UK for Reuters. And he asked if I'd be interested in opening up the first ever Reuters bureau in Scotland, in Edinburgh. Oh, wow. So I jumped at the opportunity. It was just, uh, you know, something totally different. And there was a move at that point to have what the Brits called devolution, which was basically devolving power to regional governments. But as part of this, they were going to put up a Scottish parliament and the, the, the polls were showing that the SNP, the Scottish National Party, was leading. So 
there was a bit of anxiety about whether or not uh, Scotland might actually become independent, um, anxiety, which has sort of lasted to this day. So, you know, I was covering that. The Northern Ireland peace process was still bumping along. So I got to cover that, go to Belfast and, and learn that story, which was a lot of fun and, and an eye opener. I always tell people that for my money, the scariest people I've ever seen are, are white people. <laughs> <laughs> and in particular, the Orange Order marches in Northern Ireland, where you get these guys uh, with sort of tattoos and they're drinking and they're shouting things. Um, I was spit on. I mean, it, it just uh, really incredibly aggressive. And you think, wow, um, that's pretty hardcore. So uh, scary stuff for me is sort of a Mexican-American who had never set foot in Belfast to be confronted with some of this stuff. So then uh, Reuters asked me to come down to London and uh, cover European pharmaceutical companies. It was sort of one of these European-wide beats, and it was seen as a step up, so I did. This was around what year? In, in 2000. Okay. So then Mexico was having an election that June, I believe it was, June or July. And I told my boss at the time, who was the one who was with me in Mexico, I said, you know, the PRI is going to lose. Mexico's opposition is going to win. This guy, Vicente Fox, is going to win. And um, the polls were sort of neck and neck, but I was, I was sure Fox was going to win. And I said, you know, let me go back and help the bureau cover it. So he said, yeah, sure. So I hopped on a plane to Mexico. And when I was there, I, I put out a couple stories uh, the guy from the journal saw one of the stories and called and said, hey, I remember you're, you worked in Mexico before. And I said, yeah. And he said, well, you know, I'm hiring. Would you be interested? And, you know, gosh, in journalism, that's just like I had never sort of planned my career. And so a lot of people, you know, work really hard to try to go from the wire services to a newspaper. And, and this just sort of fell in my lap. So I said, well, yeah, sure. Um, so I applied. I got the job and I moved back from London to Mexico. In, and I arrived. My first day of work was the day he sent the Fox took his oath of office. So that was in, I believe, November 1st, 2000. And that was really exciting watching the introduction of democracy to Mexico. So then I stayed in Mexico from 2000 until last year. I started as a reporter, eventually was made deputy bureau chief, then I was made bureau chief, then I was made editor for Latin America. I never got bored the entire time, always felt there were a million great and interesting stories across Latin America to write. In 2003, I helped cover the Iraq war. Um, so I went to Iraq for a couple of months and that, oh, wow. was, that was fascinating. You were embedded or how did you do it? I was going to be embedded with the 4th Infantry Division that was going to come in through Turkey, but at the last minute, the Turks didn't allow it. So I was sort of at loose end. So I finally entered the day that Bush declared the end of major combat and put up that mission accomplished banner on the aircraft carrier, that, that infamous day. <laughs> um, so I arrived in, in Baghdad and I... You know, I didn't speak Arabic. I'd never been in the Middle East before. It was kind of a, a terrifying prospect. But I arrived in Baghdad and I was told, go to this small hotel where your colleagues are. And I turned up and I met two colleagues from the journal. And uh, the next morning they said, well, we're glad you're here. We're going. We covered this whole thing and we're tired, so we're leaving. <laughs> so for the next month, I was the only guy in Iraq for the journal. And I was still hadn't been at the paper that long. I'd never been in the Middle East. And, you know... It's kind of thing that we'd never do nowadays, but, you know, they just kind of threw me in. So I ended up having a ball. I mean, it was a fascinating time to be there because it went from sort of it was hard to walk down the street when I first arrived because people were so excited to see an American that they would come out and shake your hand and invite you in for tea. So it was sort of, you know, mostly the majority Shia population um, that they were thrilled to see Saddam gone and, and sort of thrilled to have the what they viewed as the boot of the Sunni oppressors sort of off their necks. 
Uh, of course, it depended what neighborhood you went to. But then sort of by the end of my time, I was there about three months, you know, things had really changed. And you, you could start to see that tensions were starting to get a lot higher. The Americans made obviously huge mistakes along the way. It's just nowhere near enough manpower. Rumsfeld sort of famously said he didn't need a big army. Well, you didn't need a big army to win the war, but you needed a big army to occupy a country and make it work. And there were things I remember very clearly from that, the disbanding of the Iraqi army, the decision in the waning days of the war to bomb the communications network. There was a famous uh, Saddam Hussein spokesman who kept saying, I triple guarantee you there are no American troops in Baghdad. And uh, so he was sort of getting a lot of airtime. And I think the Pentagon got frustrated. So they took out the communications ministry. And that was a mistake because then the Americans, when they arrived, had no way to communicate with the people. The telephones were down. There was no TV. So the only TV that was available was Iranian TV. And they weren't exactly being pro-American, as you can imagine. And they allowed a lot of looting. And so a lot of the ministries and government offices were destroyed except for the oil ministry. And I had a hard time answering questions from Iraqis about, well, wait a minute, if you guys aren't here for the oil, then why is the oil ministry the only ministry you guys basically managed to save? And I remember sort of as a frustrated journalist asking GIs, like, why are you guys stopping this stuff? You know, they're, they're destroying their country. Those aren't my orders, sir. Um, you know, very, very polite. But uh, the U.S. made some, some huge mistakes early on. And so by the end of my time, I, I had a colleague, who I didn't know at the time very well, um, but he's a very famous now war correspondent for the journal Yaroslav Trofimov. Sorry, what was his name? Um, Yaroslav Trofimov. So Yaro is Ukrainian. And so, uh, as you can imagine, he is now leading our coverage of the Ukraine war. And he's uh, just a fantastic journalist. I learned a lot from him in Iraq. I mean, he turned up and on the first day he said, so when's the insurgency starting? And I said, I beg your pardon, Yarrow? He said, the insurgency. There's going to be an insurgency. And I said, well, there is? <laughs> so I felt a bit foolish. But I learned very quickly that he was right. And you started seeing the, the warning signs in there. There would be an American killed here. There'd be a shooting incident over there. Power lines were getting downed. And so, yeah, you know, he nailed it. He was the first person I ever heard the word Sunni triangle from. It was an education. We ended up doing a really fun story together that was my idea called A Day in the Life of Baghdad because... I wanted to try to describe what is it like under American occupation somewhere? What is city life like for ordinary Iraqis? So we mapped out, there were three of us, and we mapped out different parts of the city, different things we would do on a given day, going to a gasoline station, for example, to see the long lines, because there would be overnight lines of people trying to get fuel, you know, going to a school, going to money exchangers on the streets to talk about the economy. And so we did all this, and it was just a fabulous, really insightful story that I think, you know, really kind of captured it. So, you know, it was a, lot of, it was a chance to do a lot of fun. I ran across this one character, this English guy, that was there to recover the treasure of Nimrud. And I said, well, what are you talking about, the treasure of Nimrud? What was that? And he said, well, it's an, it's an ancient treasure that Uday and Kusay, Saddam's kids, have basically stolen. But we think it might be in the vault of the central bank. So he ended up meeting these, this American colonel, Matthew Bogdanos, great guy. They ended up doing a book called The Thieves of Baghdad about the whole experience. And um, I tagged along and basically they let me sort of end up writing an, an A-head for the journal about the recovery of the treasure of Nimrud. The central bank had been flooded. The vaults had been flooded. So they had no idea what they would find. They hired these pumps. They, they unflooded the central bank and they, they tracked down the deputy central bank governor who was there 
he was concerned about it too. So he managed to get him in the vault. And I wasn't there when they actually did the sort of the Geraldo Rivera reveal of opening the vault. <laughs> right. But the treasure was there. And I, I think it now is in the National Museum of, of Baghdad, but it was safe. It was, it was chronicled. It was just a really fun sort of treasure hunt story in the middle of war. So, uh, you know, it shows that it's not all about the guns and, and the insecurity. That there are other cultural and, and bits, important bits of life that happen in, in and among these events. So that was a great experience. Um, yeah, that's a lot in three months. You said you were there three months, yeah? Yeah, ended up, uh, yeah, they were just great stories. I mean, very memorable stuff because it was so different to anything I had done. I mean, I realized sort of halfway through that the Iraqi economy was basically, you know, again, growing up in Mexico, sort of being able to see this with the lens. This was a state-run economy. So I thought, well, you know, if the government's been toppled, what the hell's going to happen to all these state companies? So I chose the Iraqi state cigarette company to do a profile on and, and what was going on. And I ended up finding out a guy from upstate New York who was a reservist, who was the head of economic planning at this town in upstate New York. And he was trying to get this company up and running again so that people could have jobs and make money and so that the economy wouldn't completely crater and feed the insurgency. So it was just, it was just fascinating to, to tag along with them again and sort of see what they were trying to do it was hard because, there, again, there were no phones. So how do you find, you know, they, they would go stand in front of the company and passersby would walk by and they would say, excuse me, with a translator, do you know anyone that works here? And they eventually found somebody who said, yeah, I know a guy that works there. And then they went to this house. No, he wasn't there. So they had to come back the next day. They, you know, the guy, <laughs> the guy finally tells him, yeah, I know some people. Well, can you round them all up and bring them back to work? So it was just this utterly fascinating experience. I remember when it started working again, I was walking through the factory floor and I saw this flyer and it had a Star of David on it with a cross through it, with an X through it. And I asked my translator to read it to me. And she said, oh, it's, uh, I don't want to tell you what it is. And I said, come on, what is it? She was really embarrassed. And she said, well, I'm, I'm ashamed as a Muslim to tell you what it says. And I said, oh, come on, you know, tell me. So basically it was some disgruntled workers at the factory warning that if they allowed the Americans to take over the factory and help them, that the factory was going to be sold to Jews from Israel. And basically there was a whole thing was like a Jewish conspiracy, which was my first sort of encounter with sort of anti-Semitism in, 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 in that part of the world and, and how deeply rooted some of those things are. So, you know, that, that was a bit wild. I actually got a little bit mad and I, I had some of the workers gather around and through the interpreter told them, you know, what are you talking about? Like, you know, do you guys know any Jews? Well, no. Has any Jew ever done any wrong to you? Well, no. Has Israel done any wrong to you? Well, no. <laughs> so, you know, what's this all about? So, you know, I, I, I guess I, I took off my journalism hat for a second because it was just uh, it was kind of that kind of um, bigotry didn't sit well. So anyway, the whole Iraq experience was unforgettable. And so later, you know, years later, when the whole Egypt Tahrir Square uprising happened, I raised my hand again. I didn't raise my hand for other wars because uh, I have kids now, but the Tahrir Square thing was was just so fascinating that that I went there and helped cover that, and that was another sort of milestone for me as a reporter to be able to see that. Got that one wrong in many ways, I think, because. It just, it felt so optimistic to me. I mean, I thought, you know, the people you'd meet in Tahrir Square were all young. They were educated. They were sharp. They were westernized. They knew the internet backwards and forwards. 
They were using WhatsApp to organize. It just felt like, yes, you know, this is the Arab world getting its act together. And I remember I had a colleague, Matt Bradley, a really smart American kid, went to Duke and uh, spoke good Arabic. And um, I used to call him Ana Esmi Mat because Ana Esmi is my name is. Um, and I would hear him on the phone all the time, Ana Esmi Mat. And so I said, Ana Esmi, <laughs> what, what do you make of all this? And he said, well, you haven't seen the other Egypt. And I said, what do you mean the other Egypt? He said, you got to go outside central Cairo and you got to meet the place where the Muslim Brotherhood has their supporters. And you got to meet that side of Egypt, the rural side, the uneducated side, the poorer side. So when I did... I was a bit shocked, and I had my first meetings with some guys from the Muslim Brotherhood and heard them joking about gays and things like this. And, uh, you know, when I left, I was still optimistic because I thought, you know, we're on the right side of history here. And then everything else happened, and Syria happened, and Libya happened, and and, uh, Sisi is in charge of Egypt. And you're left thinking that, you know, we're naive sometimes about these places, I think, uh, as Americans, we're naive, and I think as the West, we're sometimes naive. And so, you know, when I think back to Iraq, the French were right. You know, the French were telling us, hey, there's no WMDs in Iraq, and we thought we knew better. And we arrived, and well, it turns out the French were right. And with Egypt and other places, some of the realists, some of the people who are saying, you know, you can't just change these societies with one fell swoop because they don't have the institutions, they don't have the democratic tradition, they don't have the history and and having built up these institutions that you need. And it's really hard to build those things up. You can't build them up from one month to the next. So, you know, it's been, I I think, sort of a cold bath for a lot of us. And so went back to Mexico. And since then, I think, you know, the biggest thing that happened in Mexico during those years for me was the drug war. So I covered an awful lot of that. You know, maybe too much. I think one of the reasons why we chose to leave Mexico eventually was I think I've, I've had sort of two moments of PTSD as a journalist. I was fine after Iraq. I was, I was fine after Egypt. But I think it was 2012, the big Haiti earthquake. So I went to Haiti to help cover the aftermath of that. And um, that was tough. Uh, hundreds of thousands of people had lost their lives. Um, there, there were just a lot of dead bodies around. It was difficult. I remember... My colleague, Jose de Cordoba, and I were in a home. And it's funny because, you know, it was a Haitian family that had very kindly taken us in, uh, rented some rooms to us. And they were a very sophisticated family. It turns out he was the head of personal bodyguards uh, for baby Doc Duvalier. So I was like, holy shit, you know, is this guy a good guy? Is he like totally sinister? His daughter was lovely, very, you know, they spoke beautiful French. They, they were very sophisticated. So as we were, I was, as I was lying down uh, one night sleep, I, I actually heard the ground under my pillow crunching together. And about three or four seconds later, it started shaking again. And we had just been out all day looking at, you know, collapsed buildings everywhere across Port-au-Prince. And to suddenly have to hear that sound, I'll never get it out of my head, of the ground cracking against each other and then the shaking, and then to hear the screams of the women in the neighborhood. Everybody ran out of their houses and, and we spent the rest of the night outdoors together with everybody because everybody was just too freaked out to uh, to go back inside. Other than Jose, who went back and was snoring happily again. But, uh, <laughs> but ever since then, sort of being in an earthquake zone in Mexico, whenever things would start shaking, 
you know, earthquakes never bothered me before. But then in sort of late, you know, 2017, 2019, we had some bad earthquakes in Mexico and that was hard. And I realized that, you know, that it took me years before I could sort of, before I could hear a cracking in a room or a creaking that was just a normal sound and not sort of break out into a cold sweat. And I think the other time was was just from too much exposure to um, bad stuff in the drug wars in Mexico. There's a story I'll tell you later about, you know, one of the stories I'm most proud of, but uh, but we'll, we'll get into that. But I think, you know, sure. we as journalists like to think we're tough guys. Um, and, you know, yeah, it's pretty badass to go to these wars and cover these things and you feel sort of like you're really doing it, but um, there's a cost. There's an emotional cost to seeing too much. And, um, you know, I definitely saw too much of some things. It made me a sadder person. Um, and, uh, you know, you try to you try to keep your faith in humanity and keep your sense of humor. Uh, but yeah, some, some of the stories can get a bit much. And I think we as journalists tend to underestimate the impact it has on us emotionally. Yeah. So that's sort of the, 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 the whole history. Um, then we, you know, decided to move to the UK. My kids got into a great school here. And, you know, arriving was a trial by fire because I was taking over this new job. And uh, within days, Boris Johnson quit. That was a big story. Then he was getting replaced. Then the Queen died. That was a huge story and a real education to me and, and sort of British. I love British history, so I know a lot of the history, but an education in, in the monarchy. And then, of course, Liz Truss took over and basically, you know, almost imploded the economy. <laughs> uh, the markets were going crazy. And we, we got, had a joke in the office that it was me. You know, I, I turned up from Mexico and sort of was turning the UK into an emerging market. Uh, the pound was sinking like a stone and bond yields were, were going crazy. And it did look for a bit there. Like, uh, so we did a WhatsApp chat group called Buenos Aires on Thames. I just sort of poke fun at this idea that Britain was becoming an emerging market. Um, then, you know, Trust got kicked out and Rishi Sunak took over. But it was, a, it was a pretty hectic period. But, you know, it's always better when you take over a new job to have things happening as opposed to sort of casting around for your first stories. So yeah. I, I didn't have time to think of it. And by the time I looked up, sort of four months had gone by and I felt quite comfortable in, in London. So that was sort of a, a, a blessing. To, to go back to, you know, some of your thinking and leaving Mexico, it had something to do with some of these experiences. So, I mean, most of your moves are people calling you up and saying, hey, can you come do this thing? This is one you sought out this move to the UK, it sounds like. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's I think that's fair. I mean, uh, my wife and I talked about it for years. We, we got a joke that, you know, we were never going to leave because we talk about it. And, you know, we were worried about the violence in Mexico. It was hard growing up there and knowing that it's such a beautiful country and there's so many amazing places to go visit, but feeling like on the weekends we couldn't put the kids in the car and go to Guanajuato, go to Michoacan, go to some of these places because it was just pretty dangerous or it felt dicey. And, you know, putting them at risk. There was one weekend in particular. We had a weekend house, we still do, in Tepoztlan, which is a just a gorgeous, mountainous, indigenous city about an hour and a half south of Mexico City near Cuernavaca. And um, I was going to take my kids to Cuernavaca that afternoon, and I happened to check my WhatsApp, and I saw that they were hanging dead bodies from bridges as you were sort of going into Cuernavaca. 
Uh, so we turned around and went back to Temple Song. But I thought, you know, God, what if we were driving under that and my kids saw these naked, tortured, dead bodies hanging from a bridge? Yeah, Jesus. Not, not a great, you know, it wouldn't be dad of the year. So things like that, I started thinking, well, gosh, you know, this just, I was worried about kidnapping. I mean, um, kidnapping is one of those things that when you learn more about it and you learn how widespread it is in Mexico, there's a lot of kidnapping for ransom. Um, and so... I was always worried in the back of my mind that someday I might be kidnapped. They might see, you know, hey, he's, he's American. He's probably got money. I talked to a, an American friend of mine, Ron Lavender. Uh, he was uh, an American guy, lovely guy. I don't know if Ron's still alive, but he was sort of the real estate king of Acapulco. You'd go in Acapulco and you'd see these big billboards, you know, Lavender y Asociados. And he would sort of buy and sell real estate to a lot of foreigners who wanted to move there. And so Ron was kidnapped uh, and held. He was chained oh, wow. in a small room for about, I think, almost a year. Whoa. And one day he told me his whole story, not for publication, but just for my years. And it was harrowing stuff. He had like two or three magazines that was his only source of entertainment the entire year. So he basically memorized them, read them so many times. And then he was eventually released. They paid a ransom. He was released. And he, incredibly, he stayed in Acapulco. Wow. And, you know, I can't imagine what kind of PTSD he must have had, but he stayed. And, um, you know, Ron must have been in his mid to late 60s at that point. I mean, kidnapping a, an elderly man and, and holding him chained in such terrible conditions was tough. So you hear these stories and it gets you thinking. And, you know, obviously I think targeting Americans isn't something that normally happens. But, you know, you hear stories from, from Mexican families and other things. And the longer I was there, the more I knew how Mexico works. And it was honestly uh, pretty depressing. I mean, between the corruption and the violence, you know, there's there's so many wonderful things about Mexico. And like I said, I do hope someday I can sort of retire there, at least spend sort of six months of the year in Teposlan and six months somewhere else. But, you know, it, th those things really gnaw at you after a while. And so for the kids, we sort of thought, well, you know, uh, where where's a place where it's stimulating for them, where it's someplace different, it's also, you know, growing up in Mexico, the haves and the have-nots again, um, going back to the inequality. You know, I didn't want them to be, you know, we had a maid and we had somebody who cooked food and it was very, it was a great lifestyle, but it's not a very realistic lifestyle. Yeah. And so I also thought it might be time to expose them and us uh, to the joys of doing dishes. <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, I mean, the thing about the PTSD, I mean, I, I've done a couple reporting trips that I'd consider pretty upsetting that, yeah, you don't really even realize till a lot afterwards, usually that, uh, how upsetting it was. And it does kind of stick with you. And we should learn to talk about this more among ourselves. Cause I feel like journalists, we rarely sort of open up to other journalists and say, you know, Hey, I, I, I'm not, you know, that's kind of stayed with me and I'm not feeling too good about this. Um, so I think it's important that we do that it's seen as a normal thing. And, you know, I think the Journal and other papers have gotten a lot better about providing help and an ear for stuff like this. Um, there's no stigma around it. But I think, I, you know, I think it happens more than people realize. Yeah. At least it, it was good. I did a hostile environment training in August. And I'd done shorter ones before. I'd done them before, but now this time was the first time they had a session of the like five day training dedicated just to like mental health stuff. And it really does feel like things are changing a bit. That's right. To even, you know, five years ago. Um, anyway, uh, where were we? 
So that that kind of brings us up to present. So the next section we usually talk about is stories. Usually I like to start on the down note uh, so we can end on a high note. So I ask first about the story that got away, if there was ever a story in your career that you wanted to do, but it just didn't come off. Is there, there any that springs to mind? Yeah, two examples. One was during the presidency of Enrique Peña Nieto, Mexico's uh, former president before the current president. There was a scandal already of a house that he and his wife were using that was paid for by a government contractor. So it was a, it was a clear conflict of interest, a big mansion that had basically been built for them. She said she paid market rates. There was some discussion about that. But we, we eventually found out that there was another house that he was building in a very exclusive place called Punta Mita at the resort right next to the Four Seasons. I think it was a, um, a Regis resort. And we had everything but the title of the land. And of course, by that point, they were smart enough to realize they couldn't have the title in their name. So we went to the public registry to see if by any chance it was under their name or an associate of theirs, but there was nothing to be found. And it was one of those stories where there was a lot of smoke. We were 90% sure it was his, but we couldn't publish it. And it was frustrating because we had so much good sort of eyewitness stuff and, and it felt so right, but we were never able to publish it. I was just talking to a friend of mine, and he said he was in Punta Mita. And I said, oh, you know, how was it? And he said, oh, great. You know, I saw Peña Nieto there. <laughs> I thought, oh, boy. <laughs> you know, I wonder if uh, he was at his new house. Um, so, you know, again, I can't prove it. Um, I can't even prove it talking about it. But we just needed that one piece of paper that we couldn't get. So that was, a, that was frustrating. But you've got to be careful. Uh, I'm sorry if I didn't maybe follow it completely, but... It's one of these corruption things. Somebody else had paid for the house. Or... Yeah, it was the it was the same contractor that it, that was basically building him this house. Um, so they were getting huge contracts from the government and exchange. It seemed as though the gotcha. president and the and the first lady were getting nice mansions to live in. So gotcha. uh, not not a great look. Not too different from the Lula, the case Lula went to jail for. I believe was uh, the yeah yeah exactly. getting a house that wasn't under his name. And you know we'll never really know for sure what happened there i don't think so that's interesting exactly so you know and then and then i would say one that you know we had you know i don't know how you feel but i sort of feel like so often journalism sort of by the nature of news we write about what goes wrong i mean news often is negative the gaza stuff in israel now is is, is obviously a negative event but it's news and it's hard to write about to write accurately about the world because if you're only writing about news and about mostly negative things. It gives a distorted view of the world. And I worry the older I get that we're part of the problem in not reflecting the good parts of life too. So I, I'm always grateful that the journal has sort of a daily A-head, which is a, you know, a human interest story that's usually a sort of a, a man bites dog type of story. And I do think we should do a lot more of solution stories. And one topic that I covered almost ad nauseum along with the drug war in Mexico was immigration. And it gets frustrating to write about because you're just writing about sort of the state of play. Like there's X number of people coming. There's an ebb. There's a flow. There's this, there's that. There's, you know, thousands massed on the border. And it feeds into this sort of primal fear in America that, you know, the borders are broken, that immigration is totally out of control, that this, this is a terrible thing. And there's a lot of truth in that. The border is broken. The immigration system is ludicrous the more you find out about it as a reporter. 
But there are solutions. And I think, you know, we need to focus on some of the things that work. And so during the Trump administration, we realized that the H-2A farm worker visa program was actually quietly growing. That as while the Trump administration was really cracking down on the border, they were allowing many, many more guest workers, Mexican guest workers to come across and work in farms. And I thought, well, now that's interesting because basically everyone's got this image of Trump as this total hard ass immigration. And he is. And the way he's going about sort of blowing up the system rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. But here's something they're doing that people don't talk about that is clearly sort of one of the solutions. And that's, you know, we can all agree that we don't want illegal immigration, but we do want legal migration. But within the legal migration bucket, we have a program here that works very well, where half a million Mexican farm workers a year come to the United States legally. They get transport paid for by these companies. They go up for nine months a year. They have a good wage. They work the farms, they work these jobs, and they go back to Mexico. So you would think sort of the right-wingers kind of like it because they're not staying in America. And, you know, the left-wingers might like it because there's some kind of guest work. Turns out neither side sort of likes it all that much politically. (laughs) A lot of the right-wingers say they want immigration. They say they want people coming in, but they kind of don't. So they're not really that in favor of legal migration either. And a lot of the left-wingers don't like it because it's it's competition for American labor. Or they think that these people's rights aren't being respected and that, that you need to sort of treat them better. They're somehow uh, treated badly. But for the Mexicans, this is something I think Americans have never really understood. This is the ideal solution for a lot of Mexicans. They don't want to go live in the States. They want a job. They love their own country. They love their culture. They want to just make enough money to have a go at having a good life in Mexico. So having sort of temporary worker programs where, yes, if they come up, you know, X number of years and they have a good record and everything, maybe you give them a pathway for residency and eventual citizenship. But offer that chance because by not offering that chance, you force a lot more to go underground. And they're still going because the the demand is there, but you have no control over who's coming in. They're not going back. And then by militarizing the border, you prevent them from going back because the risk to them of getting caught outweighs the benefits. So they'll just stay in the U.S. underground. And then guess what? They're going to bring their family up to join them eventually. So, you know, there was a great guy, Doug Massey at Princeton, who once uh, estimated that there were actually two or three million more people of Mexican origin living in the U.S. than if the U.S. had literally just left an open border because it ended up causing this sort of effect of not being able to cross back and forth. Um, There tended to be a circularity to migration in the past where people would come up and work and go back home. And once they made enough money, they would go back home permanently. But anyhow, so we had this sort of really fun story all ready to go. It was filed. It was accepted by our enterprise page one team. It was going to run. And then the pandemic hit. And the story never ran. And it was just one of those cases where it's, no one ever said we're killing the story, but just it's one of those things where, you know, there's a, a former British prime minister, Harold Macmillan, once said, events, dear boy, events. It's one of those things where you might have a very, very good story, a very insightful story that offers a partial solution to something and it gets overtaken by events. Um, and so the news agenda just shifts in such a radical way that no one's that interested in your topic. And by the time they have the bandwidth to deal with immigration again. A year and a half has passed and the story's kind of changed and Trump administration's out of office and, you know, it's hard to write that same story. So you can go back and revisit it, but that was one that sort of 
also, I, I still feel a little, uh, you know, I, 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 we, we, you know, we all as journalists need to go back and try to write about immigration in ways that offers solutions. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, writing about climate change now, I certainly do wonder if uh, I write about only depressing things, only terrible things most of the time. And <laughs> I feel like even when like I take a shot at trying to write something more positive, like writing about reforestation more recently, the editors very much want to focus on all the negative things about it. Right. Well, we got to we got to push our editors because it's a, it's important. I mean, otherwise people just get too jaundiced and they, they don't want, you know, I mean, my wife's like this. A lot of people I know are like this. And understandably, they say, you know, I don't want to look at the news. It's too depressing. We have to let them in and offer them some joy. It doesn't mean we have to change the grim reality of things. I mean, the climate change is serious. But, you know, what's working there? What are the new things? I mean, for me right now, I'm, I'm fascinated in EV batteries. I mean, it seems like there's going to be a real revolution in EV batteries and they'll, they'll be lighter and better and better made and they can be made with other materials that the Chinese don't control. I mean, there, I think there's a lot of good news out there as well. Yeah. And it's good that the journal has the A-head slot. It's like they've got to do one every day because there's that spot on the front page every day. Yeah. So that's a good way to, to make it happen. Cool. Let me see. And then I guess, yeah, to move on to the story you're proud of, a story that you did publish, if you could pick uh, one story from your career and tell us kind of how you did it start to finish, the kind of the story behind the story, how you came up with the idea till publication reaction, all that. Yeah, it would be the series we did on violence in Latin America. And it came from, I had seen some, it's probably 2016, 2015, I had seen some academic research and some small news stories sort of based on the academic research about how Latin America had 8% of the global population, but had about 34, 35% of global murders. And so Latin America really is the murder capital of the world. And I thought, well, now there's a good series. And how are we going to tell it? Because there's a lot of facets to it. And so what we did is I, I went to Acapulco for the first story that sort of introduced this issue broadly and was just, you know, with tons of data and graphs and charts and talked about the various reasons why Latin America is the, is the murder capital of the world, the lack of good law enforcement institutions, the, the you know, colonial legacy, the drugs trade, all kinds of things, the, the guns coming from north to south. And Acapulco was a great place to tell the story because here's, here's a city that most Americans know. And to me, if you want to understand why Mexico has failed as a country, the best place to look is Acapulco, because Acapulco has everything going for it. It is an incredibly beautiful, I mean, it's not as gorgeous as Rio, but it's a beautiful natural setting, great beaches, great tourist attraction. It should be doing well. And it's not because of Mexico's shortcomings, because Mexico can't build good institutions. So it's incredibly corrupt. The drug gangs eventually made their way in there. And the government response to go after the drug gangs kind of pulverized them into ever smaller gangs. And because there was no law enforcement, sort of all hell broke loose. And in a way, Acapulco just became this sort of hellscape of what happens when Everyone, society realizes that no one's kind of minding the shop, that the cops won't actually ever catch you for doing anything, that you can, it's a place where you can get away with murder, and many people often do, where you can commit crimes of all kinds and get away with it. 
The politicians do it by stealing money. The cops do it by extorting people. People run kidnap gangs. So it was a story that I think worked very well. I went to the morgue and talked about the overwhelmed mortuary workers, how they had dead bodies basically lying everywhere. You could smell the morgue a good block or two away because they couldn't, they didn't have enough refrigeration units for all the bodies piling up. We chronicled some of the murders. So, so we ended up in that series doing other stories from other latitudes and longitudes of, of Latin America. That story got a lot of attention when it was published. It really sort of shocked people into realizing there was a problem. But I think we made a mistake, too. This sort of, you know, it's, it's, it's a story of like the one that got away, too, because I think what we did, then did is we, we tackled the other issues behind this topic in different ways. So we did violence against women in El Salvador. We did guns in Brazil. We did Ecuador trying to reform its police force to create, you know, and having some success with its police force, which has all been dismantled since then. But I feel we would have had a stronger series. One of my editors at the very beginning of this said, well, why don't you just do the rest of the series in Acapulco and keep it all based in one place? And I said, oh, but there's so many other great things to tell across Latin America. It's a region-wide problem. I think he was right. We didn't end up winning uh, any prizes. We, we got runner-up for the Overseas Press Club Prize. I was a little disappointed. There was a great Reuters story that year from the migration of people fleeing Venezuela. Oh, yeah. But... You know, I was disappointed because I felt it was a really worthy series. And I think had we done the Acapulco thing, it would have been a bit stronger uh, because you could find all of those elements in Acapulco itself. In fact, one of the other stories that I ended up doing as a part of that series was also set in Acapulco. And it was about, again, sort of what happens in a society when law and order breaks down. And curiously, I would say doing this story is what made me ultimately decide that we were going to leave Mexico sooner rather than later. It was about a high school kidnap gang. These were high schoolers at a private high school in Acapulco. They were not poor. They were sons and daughters of upper middle class people in Acapulco who decided they could kidnap their classmates <laughs> and make money wow. by getting ransom from their parents. So this story was a real journey into the heart of darkness. I mean, I went through all the police files and I read, um, I must have read about 14 full police reports, you know, wading through this Mexican bureaucratic legalese about what these kids had done. They were 16, 17 years old. They ended up kidnapping their friends and then torturing them brutally to death. Whoa. And then getting ransom for a few thousand pesos, a few hundred bucks from their parents and then dumping the dead bodies somewhere near Acapulco. Wow. And I thought, what makes high school kids who've grown up in relative privilege in a place like Acapulco do something like this? How, how can it be that society's gotten this dark? And why, if you're going to kidnap people, why kidnap your friends? Why torture them? I mean, one of the things that eventually drove me crazy in Mexico is the fact that so much of the drug war comes down to torturing your enemies in these incredibly cruel and savage ways. I mean, just put a bullet through their head. You can leave the dead body. You don't need this sort of carnival of grotesque, you know, the very worst of human nature playing out. And, you know, that story kept me up at night for a long time. Because I thought, you know, how is it that these kids ended up doing this to each other? One of the girls kidnapped her boyfriend 
And, and they got, and the amounts of money they were making from this were, were tiny. And they killed these kids. And they're all, they, they were eventually caught. One of the mothers was one of these crusading women, just an incredible woman. One of these fascinating characters you meet as a journalist. I remember her telling me my mother, it was her grandmother, told me every morning to wake up and the first thing you got to do is have a tall glass of cold water. And uh, so I follow that every day and it helps my life. And I thought, you know, it's not bad advice. <laughs> so she was an amazing woman. She eventually found out who had killed her daughter and forced the police to act. And the police finally arrested this group and locked them up. But it was, it was one of these stories that was just so awful. Um, but it says a lot about really what's happened in Acapulco. And... So I, 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 by the end of that series, I, it was it was exhausting. I, I, I feel we could have told the gun story a little better because we ended up telling it through Brazil, where Bolsonaro was basically sort of saying, yeah, we want less gun control rather than more, and sort of following in the U.S. footsteps. And that seemed uh, sort of set off alarm bells. But really, the story we should have done is how American guns account for 70% of the weapons recovered in Mexico that are used in crimes. And essentially, you know, Mexico sends the drugs north and the Americans send the money and the guns south. And that's a part of the equation that not enough Americans are aware of and that causes a lot of damage in Mexico. So I'm very proud of the story because I feel like we did a great job. Of course, I feel we could have done it better. I would have liked to have won some awards, but, you know, you know we don't do this for the awards. But, but I, am, I am proud that we sort of brought that issue and made a lot of people sort of pay attention. I got a great call from the New York Times reporter a couple months later, Azam Ahmed, he's a lovely guy. And he said, hey, I loved your series, and so did my paper. In fact, they kind of want me to do a series of my own. So he did, and he won a polk, and he did a great job. <laughs> and, I, and I learned watching him do it over, I was like, wow, Azam really chose, you know, he, he dove deep, and I think it was a Honduran gang and how they terrorized the neighborhood. Yeah, we did a gang story in like Salvador, but, you know, Ozzam did a brilliant job of it. Um, he's a very, very talented journalist and he totally deserved to win his award. But I thought it was a classy move to like call me up and say, hey, dude, I'm going to give you a heads up. Don't get mad that we're basically doing a series on violence, but, you know, they kind of liked yours. So if, if imitation is a sincerest form of flattery, be flattered. Yeah, for sure. And yeah, and though there's so many times where you don't get that call, you you see something very similar and you think, eh, yeah. they probably, yeah. probably this is what happened. <laughs> exactly. That, that, that's why I've always felt Ozzam's a class act. He's a good man. And I mean, in that series, you do feel like you got enough at, at the the root causes enough that it wasn't just pure hopelessness or. Yeah. I mean, it, it sounds hard to be hopeful in a, a series like that. It is. I mean, you know, the answers. Uh, Ernesto Zadillo, Mexico's former president, used to say Mexico has three problems, the three things that it needs to do. Rule of law, rule of law, rule of law. And it's true. I mean, the, I think the best book I've ever read that sort of explained everything I had seen as a journalist um, was Why Nations Fail by Durana Simoglu and James Robinson. If you haven't read it or your listeners, I, I heartily recommend it. I, I love recommending the book. In fact, when I interviewed Asimoglu, I told him I was sort of a fanboy and I, I felt I was being like a rock star. Because that book sort of explains to me why countries like Mexico, why regions like Latin America, generally speaking, don't develop. And it's it's all comes down to institutions. And, you know, they contrast sort of the development of more inclusive, what they call inclusive institutions in the U.S., like a democracy which has inclusive uh, political institutions, political parties that represent people, 
uh, competition in the economy, an open economy, you know, a media that's free to extractive institutions. And, and we see extractive institutions all over the developed world, uh, developing world. I mean, we see them in Russia. These are institutions that are designed by the elites to extract money and power and privilege. And you know, as well as I do, that Latin America is full of institutions that are rigged so that basically the elites can suck money from the poor and they set the rules of the game so that the system doesn't work. Why doesn't Mexico get functioning police forces? Are they dumb? Do they not get that you need good cops to catch the bad guys and good judges to lock them up and good wardens to make sure that, like Chapo, they don't escape not once but twice from a maximum security jail? <laughs> they're, they're not dumb. They totally understand that. We've talked ourselves blue in the face telling them that's what they need to do. But the politicians don't want to do that. The state governors don't want to do that because they want to use the police forces in an arbitrary way and apply the law arbitrarily the famous uh, Peruvian president saying, for my, for my friends, anything. For my enemies, the law. And, and it's true. Uh, the laws are applied selectively. The judicial systems aren't fair or honest. The cops are not trained well. They're not impartial. They're not professional. And Mexico has never taken that seriously. Mexico spends less than 1% of GDP on security. You get what you pay for. Why aren't the politicians spending more? Because they don't want to. It's not in their interest to have a, a professional police forces that are going to lock up their friends for corruption. You know, Brazil with the Lava Jato thing, I think, took its first steps. It's become obviously politicized and whether or not the prosecutors had a political agenda is, is very debatable. And I think it's a shame what happened because the idea was right. You take a group of very well-trained prosecutors from the best schools around the world you give them budgetary independence, you give them training, you give them everything they need to go capture public corruption. And they did, you know, maybe too good a job. Maybe it was too political, but it was a hell of a thing. And if that's done correctly, it can transform these countries. I mean, in Mexico, the prosecutor's office that's in charge in the attorney general's office of investigating public corruption, like by public officials, has a budget of $1 million and a staff of three. <laughs> Their budget goes used up in salary and equipment and everything. So do, do they ever investigate anything? No, they don't. And nothing ever, nobody ever gets caught. So those are the kinds of things that Latin America needs to develop. And these institutions, you know, the older you get, the more you realize that that's where it's all at, these institutions. And the countries that can manage to do that uh, thrive. And that's why, again, in the States, it worries me that, you know, we have politicians and people losing faith in institutions. The political parties are losing the trust of the people because of things like gerrymandering, where they're undermining this critical institution of American democracy by not being truly open. And so I worry about Western institutions being undermined. People don't like the Fed. People don't like Congress. People you know, don't trust the media anymore. These are institutions that, are, that will make the difference in our country's future. And if we destroy them, rather than reforming them, I think we're setting ourselves up for a world of trouble. Mm -hmm. My wife calls that my institution speech. She's heard it a million times. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. And yeah, I mean, in Brazil, it has completely fizzled. It's crazy how, yeah. how it's just like it didn't even happen. <laughs> Which is the wrong lesson. I mean, it's sad that it happened because now, you know, when's the next time they're going to set up something like that? Yeah, yeah. But anyway, and it's good that you got a nod from the, from the OPC. I, I know, you know, everybody wants to win, but that's still <laughs> more than a lot of things. 
And I, I do find like, uh, you know, I don't know, I struggle with the awards thing. I, I, I find like it can kind of poison my thinking sometimes. And I have to be like, no, I just have to focus on doing the story for the story's sake. Like not think about that sort of stuff. I completely agree. You're absolutely right. Anyway, no, but that, that that's a great series, and I assume you worked on that with a lot of different reporters. It must have been a big effort from the journal. Yeah, it was fun, and it was fun sort of, you know, I was in charge of it, um, and I sort of did the overview story and then sort of farmed out the other ones and edited them all and, and did a few more myself, and it was just, it was great fun because everyone got into it. I, I'm proud to work with just, you know, I worked with some incredibly talented people, um, Juan Foreto, uh, who I love, Ryan Dubé of Peru, Jose de Cordoba in Mexico, it was really uh, a pleasure. And, you know, one thing I really love about the journal are the people. They're just uh, some, some really terrific people. Yeah. And, I mean, what impresses me about the journal is you guys have a comparatively small staff, I think, compared to, you know, some of the other big papers. But the amount of the way you're able to use your people, no matter where they are, like Drew Hinshaw, who I talked to, like he'll drop in on completely random stories all over the world and like do a great job. <laughs> so it really doesn't matter where, you know, you marshal, you might have one person in every country, but you marshal them all to, to do greater things like um, that look beyond their borders. And the, the journal is very good at that. I appreciate you saying that. I think I sort of joke that, and you know, I, Adore the New York Times. I think they do some amazing work. But I often joke that the Times is a left-of-center paper with a sort of a cutthroat capitalist culture within the paper yeah. of extreme competition and sort of, you know. <laughs> uh, and the Journal is a right-of-center paper with sort of a socialist collaborative uh, model. I mean, <laughs> I, I do think one of the Journal's big strengths is that people, it's not an ego-driven place. To a person, I mean, I, I struggle to think of a single sort of prima donna at the paper. I mean, even Yaroslav, who's a total, you know, legend, is just incredibly collaborative. And everyone works with each other. They share bylines. It's all cool. And, um, and I love that about it. It's, it's, you know, it's like the economist thing of not having bylines. I've always found that to be a really intriguing business model because it's not about the byline. It's about the stories. So next up is the lightning round, where I'll ask you faster-paced questions. Faster paced than tell me the story of your whole life, which was the first section. But feel free to answer <laughs> long or short, however you like. Do you feel ready? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. The first up is, I like to get people, if you can shout out a publication that covers an era you cover or have covered and you think does a particularly good job that maybe not everybody knows. So something like... You know, if you're interested in Brazil, I'd recommend whatever, Folha de Sao Paulo, which most people hadn't heard about, and to go check it out. Is there anything from Mexico or the UK that you, you would check that you thought they did a really good job that's maybe something not everybody's heard of? In Mexico, boy, you're going to, I mean, it's hard in Mexico because the standard of journalism isn't as good as it is in Brazil, other than Reforma, which is the Mexican newspaper that was really the first independent newspaper in Mexico. In my lifetime, there was a brief period in the 80s when, and late 70s when Excelsior sort of became independent. They got shut down by the government and all the people left. Um, but Reforma has been consistently since, I think, 1994, sort of leading the way in Mexican journalism. They have their foibles, but... I think if you want to sort of understand Mexico, that's a good place to start. 
La Reforma, you said? Yeah, Reforma. It's just, just Reforma. So they're a daily newspaper. And then I would say sort of Letras Libres, published by uh, an historian, Enrique Krause, is also sort of a, an Atlantic-type magazine. They have very good sort of thoughtful pieces on Mexico. And then next up is, what is a publication you read, listen to, or watch for fun? I would say The Rest is History, which is a history podcast here in the UK. One of the reasons I love being here is, is their love of history, and they, they just cover a wide range of, of, of stories. They had a recent one on Catherine the Great and various uh, figures in Russian history, and I've been reading a lot of, of, of Russian history to sort of understand uh, where Russia's coming from. just read a great book called The Story of Russia um, by Orlando Figas, an historian. It's a wonderful book. I recommend it to everybody to understand the story that Russia tells itself about its history. Anyhow, the rest of this history podcast is sort of one of my guilty pleasures. That's great. And then kind of to get a lot more specific, what is the best journalistic article piece? Again, it can be whatever medium you've consumed recently. So to shout out a specific thing you read recently that stuck with you. I may fail you on the on the recently part, but I wanted to mention the story because I, I, I never forgot it. It was a New Yorker story, um, 2017. How the Elderly Lose Their Rights by Rachel Aviv, set in Las Vegas. It's an absolutely harrowing story about an elderly couple. He was still, you know, very active, read all the time, everything from sort of Pulp Fiction to Proust. His wife was more bedbound, but still totally cognizant. And they essentially, one day the doorbell rang. And they were taken out of their home. They were forced to leave their home by a stranger who had gained legal guardianship over this elderly couple without them knowing anything about it. They knew nothing about a court case that was deciding their future. The family members didn't know anything about a court case deciding their future. This was just decided in court that these people were no longer able to look after themselves. And this guardian who basically seemed to be more interested in making money than anything else out of this took over control of these people's lives, moved them to an elderly daycare center and started sort of fleecing their money that was left, charging them outrageous sums for phone calls, for anything that she had to do to administer their estate, um, to pay for them. To me, it was one of the most shocking things I've ever read. I don't think I ever read a story that made me more angry. And the way the reporter did it was so beautifully done. The sense of hopelessness and the sense of unfairness that this couple's lives were taken away from them, and that the daughter, when she found out about this, there was nothing she could do about this. And apparently, this isn't just an isolated case. There were tens of thousands of cases like this happening across Nevada. And so the story to me was just what journalism should do, and it it showed me that, you know, I think originally this New Yorker reporter got the story because of an article in the Las Vegas Journal newspaper, These are the kinds of stories that I think are going to be harder for national reporters to unearth in a time when local newspapers have sort of withered on the vine. And I think it's where local journalism is so important, because had the Vegas newspaper not written about this, probably The New Yorker wouldn't have found out about it and done an incredible expose. You know, I don't know what happened after the story came out. I can only hope that changes were made. It's still to, I mean, I I was rereading it today because I was thinking, well, what that story that I read, I finally found it and was reading it. I was getting angry all over again. 
it's the most infuriating thing I've ever read. It's just in a, this is in the United States where this happens. It's, it seems to go against so many principles, but apparently it's decided on the state level. Some of these laws date back to sort of the English medieval period. They haven't really been changed much. So just an incredible story about something you knew nothing about that told in a very gripping, dramatic way. And yeah, I just, I, I, I always love that story. Yeah, wow. I'll never forget it. I think in some cases, like journalism, this is a way journalism can offer kind of a sort of justice that I don't know what happened in these specific cases. Maybe things turned out well, maybe they didn't, but just the fact that it gets the story out there. And I mean, anybody who reads it, it's there in black and white. It's it's wrong. And like the public recognition that this terrible thing is going on in its own way is a a form of uh, as much justice as you can seek. I mean, I imagine they lose years of their lives to this and things like that, that you can't get back, but at least... uh, I think that's a fair point. Not, you know, suffering in darkness or whatever. Exactly. The the shining the light in darkness. Yeah, yeah. Um, That's a good one. I'll have to look for that. Is there any particular subject matter you geek out about that isn't related to your job? (laughs) Gardening. Um, I mean, I'm an avid tennis player, um, sports-wise, but I think the thing that, and I started this in Mexico in our weekend house, and I think for me it was a break from the drug war stuff and all the negative stuff that I worked on during the week. And the weekends I became an avid gardener, and I love watching sort of, you know, English gardening shows. And, and here I've got a blank slate out the back of my house here in Kent, and I'm going to try to build an English sort of cottage-type garden here. I find gardening just enormously spiritually satisfying, physically satisfying, um, emotionally, mentally. It's 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 brilliant. I, I uh, you know, and I love geeking out about plants. It's a good escape for sure. Like from everything else, kind of reminds you that life is okay. Yeah, that there is beauty and and wonderful things in the world. Yeah, for sure. If you had to trade places with one journalist, living or dead and you would have their career, who would it be? You know, I'm terrible at this because I'm sort of a... I've always cared more about the stories than the bylines, and and I'm bad about remembering bylines, and I'm going to say sort of a cheesy answer, but it would be my some of my colleagues at the journal. Two colleagues in particular, Bob Davis and Jose de Cordova, both have enjoyed very long careers. And the reason I mention them is because, you know, journalists tend to go in one of two directions. It's hard to sort of age gracefully in this business, I think, sometimes. So you either do the editor, senior manager route, and you sort of get sucked up into that, or you continue to write and report. And to me, the people that are happiest in this line of work are those that continue to write and report. And I always admire their insatiable curiosity The fact that they're never bored by doing the same thing over and over. They always find new and interesting things to say. Both of those guys had this sort of childlike excitement about stories in their late 60s, early 70s. And they would go out. I mean, recently we did a story about what was going on with all these seized assets from Russian oligarchs. So all these you know incredible super yachts that have been seized by the U.S. government and others around the world. What's going on with them? Because the idea was... They were going to eventually try to freeze these assets and then seize them, sell them off, and use the proceeds to donate to Ukraine. But that, that basically hasn't gone anywhere, and we were trying to explain why. So we had the story of this one super yacht called the Alpha Nero, and it was docked in Antigua and Barbuda. And it's just sort of sitting there costing 
the local government $28,000 a week to keep the air conditioning on so that the mahogany interiors with the Miro paintings wouldn't get ruined. <laughs> so here's this poor island, like, you know, we're spending money hand over fist on this thing. We don't even want this thing, you know. So they tried to seize it and then sell it. Eric Schmidt from Google was going to buy it. He got cold feet because the oligarch's family sued. <laughs> and so we were thinking, we need to get somebody to Antigua, and I thought, I told my colleague Max here in London, I said, I know just the guy, Jose de Cordova in Mexico. Jose, he's a very personable, charming guy. He loves going to these places, these back of beyond places. He'll charm the pants off him. He's going to get a great color for the story. And sure enough, you know, Jose washed up in Antigua, went to the local bar where all the seamen hung out and, you know, got drunk with a bunch of guys, ended up meeting the captain, got some great color for the story. And the story was livelier and better for it. Jose is kind of like a modern day Graham Greene. He's an old fashioned reporter with a lovely sense of humor and a pot belly and just one of the kindest, most wonderful people you'll ever meet. So it's weird to say that to, to my example is a guy that works for me. But to me, Jose de Cordoba lived like the perfect journalistic career and he's still doing it. Going to places like Antigua at age 17 and living large. Yeah, wow. Well. I, I mean, I, I know the bylines, but I, I often have no idea how old people are, so I, I had no idea. He's such a character. And, and Jose's the one that got me into history, actually, when I, when I sort of, one of my nerd out things, I, you know, working with Jose, he would suddenly mention something. I would say, what's that? And he'd look at me with this disappointed look, and I thought, oh, God. So I'd go look it up, and then slowly but surely, I got completely obsessed by history, thanks to Jose. Oh, well, And... What is one thing that most people don't know about you? I love baseball. Uh, my brother ran the Houston Astros for a while and took him from the worst team in baseball to the best. Oh, wow. He was fired because of a cheating scandal that was not his fault um, because he didn't know about it. But it was his watch and it happened. And so he was fired. So if you if you Google Jeff Luno, you get some interesting results. But... I've always had a lifelong love of baseball, and it was amazing to me that my brother got to help revolutionize the sport, and I got to get to know all the Astros players and go to world, multiple World Series, and it was just an incredible time. Jeff is now trying to do the same thing uh, for soccer in Europe, so I'm, I'm anxiously watching him do this new bit in his career and following along with uh, Leganes, which is his new club in Madrid that he's bought, and he's trying to turn into a similar thing that he did with the Astros. Oh wow! How did he, how did he get into sports management? I'm just curious. Like, how does one fall into this? Yeah, no, he's, it's a it's a great story. I mean, he went to Penn undergrad and then Kellogg Business School. He was a business guy. Didn't worked in technology companies. He worked at McKinsey for a while, and he had a friend for business school whose father in law was the owner of the St. Louis Cardinals. And the book Moneyball came out, the famous Michael Lewis book. And the owner, Bill DeWitt, read it and was saying, God, this is so right. Like, I can never get my general managers to tell me, you know, how much is a player worth? Well, I don't know how much he's worth. Just pay him what he wants. And so he said, I would kill for somebody who would tell me how much a player is worth. And this guy, Jay Kern, said, well, I, I got a buddy that you should talk to. And he remembered my brother because Jeff was obsessed with baseball, more so than me. And he always used to do his fantasy league. And, of course, he'd win every year because he was really good at determining undervalued players. So the Cardinals eventually hired Jeff as an outside consultant. He, then, then they hired him full time and uh, he took the Cardinals to the World Series and the Astros hired him. He, he did the same and more of the Astros. And now 
two of the people that worked with him, Michael Ice and Sid Merchdahl, are at the Orioles, and uh, the Orioles have had an amazing year in baseball's hardest division. So this stuff works. Data and being smart and having a business-like approach can work. My brother learned a lot. He made mistakes. Everybody does. But, uh, but I think he uh, did some uh, transformational things to baseball that I'm very proud of. Yeah, well, I definitely did not know that. <laughs> what is your most embarrassing journalism-related story? So I think my most embarrassing moment as a journalist uh, came when I was in Iraq. I'd been invited onto a TV show, Fox and Friends, and uh, this was about six weeks into the occupation. There wasn't an insurgency yet, but things weren't going well. Um, U.S. and allied forces were having trouble getting the lights back on, the economy was in free fall, and security was starting to deteriorate. There were already groups sabotaging the electricity grid by knocking out electricity pylons and things like that. So I had just come from a briefing from the American military, and um, they had outlined their view on, on what was going on and what they were planning to do to fix it. And it was generally a very upbeat assessment, and um, they made a very convincing argument. So I went to this TV interview and was asked how things were going, and, and the bottom line, I just painted too optimistic a picture. I mean, I think at one point, you know, I discussed things weren't going great, but at one point I said that we might be looking at a turning point where things uh, began to, to go in, in, in favor of security and stability. And of course, it was a turning point. It was just in the wrong way. So, to, you know, the upshot to me as a journalist was never go on TV. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm joking. I mean, you know, in print, we do have the luxury uh, of looking at our words and looking them over carefully, um, which you don't have when you're on live television. Gave me a greater understanding of what journalists face when they go on live TV or anyone on live TV. Um, but I also realized you have to be sort of careful about your perspective, given the last person you interviewed or the last people you interviewed. I had just come from that briefing. It, it, you know, I love the U.S. military. They're a great institution in many ways, and there's a lot of great people there. And you can easily convince yourself that what they're saying is true. And a lot of what they are saying might be true. But, you know, you have to be careful the last interview you've had and not let it color your perspective too much um, because you might have another interview that changes things or another incident or another encounter that paints a different picture or gives it more nuance. So that's me out there on the airways forever looking totally wrong on Iraq. <laughs> uh, what is the coolest, weirdest, most surreal situation could be for the better or worse that your job has taken you into? I like to think of it as like a pinch me. I can't believe this is my life moment. I was working for Reuters in Scotland, and I wanted to do a story about the Glasgow Rangers-Glasgow Celtic rivalry. Basically, it's a religion-sectarian kind of rivalry on football, sort of Northern Ireland and Scotland, where Celtic is the Irish Catholic team and Rangers are the, are the blue-blooded Protestant Unionist team. And, I, you know, as an American, I was sort of appalled by the fact that sports and politics could mix like that. And there was a 16-year-old kid that got stabbed in Glasgow who was, was a Celtic fan and died. And so I decided to go to check it out and do a feature on this. So I'd heard that there was a very prominent Rangers pub in sort of a rough part of Glasgow. So there I went naively and walked into this bar. Everything was in blue. There was like a, a blue tartan everywhere. There was a picture of the queen over the wall. And there were these guys sort of standing around. So I started asking them. I told them I was a journalist. I mean, I, I, I didn't hide anything. And I said what I was doing. 
And so they sat me down in good Scottish fashion, started plying me with drink. <laughs> um, so I'm sitting there with these guys drinking and I'm asking them questions. And, you know, the moment my pint is done, there's like a fresh one right there. And I'm sort of nervous. So I'm, I'm drinking maybe a little too much. And then, you know, and then it, it, things take a little bit of a weird turn because I, I tried to sort of say, but, but, you know, be real for a second. Like, come on, does this matter? I mean, the Battle of the Boyne was a long fucking time ago. <laughs> And, you know, they started getting a little sort of suspicious at that. And I said, look, you know, I was raised in Mexico. I, I was raised around Catholics. You know, they're just like everybody else. And the guy was like, you were raised in Mexico? You know, are you a Catholic? And I was like, no, no, no. And I was like, but would it matter? I mean, what's wrong? And they're like, huh. <laughs> and then at some point, my pen ran out of ink. So I opened my coat and I got another pen out. And it was from the local holiday inn, but it was a, it was a green pen. And so this guy on my right, whose name was Malky, uh, Malky had gotten out of prison. He had one eye that sort of wandered off to the left. And he, he kept looking at me through <laughs> these like whiskey glazed eyes. And he saw the pen and he said, what's a Finian Bible? And he punched me in the face. Whoa. I later learned that a Fenian biro is like an Irish pen. It's uh, it was his pen from the wrong side with the wrong color. So I got punched in the face. I fell over backwards. My head hit the floor. Everybody else jumped in alarm and came and made sure I was okay. The owner of the pub came over. He was very sorry. Could he buy me a drink? And I, <laughs> at that point, I had sort of had enough. And I thought, wow, um, I did not expect that. Malky was deeply apologetic, said that, uh, you know, he just got a little offended by the pen. Um, but that was my sort of first person encounter with sectarian football. So I, I took the train back to Edinburgh that night uh, with a bit of a rising shiner. And uh, I knew I was going to have a good, like, what the hell am I doing here? Journalism story to tell for the rest of my life. Yeah. Wow. Wow. That's crazy. <laughs> Did the story turn out okay? The, the word... story turned out okay. I took that same story and I told it in a Celtic pub where there were a bunch of like IRA supporters. And of course I was plied with Guinness till I basically blacked out and sort of fed it as the, as the journalistic hero went into the enemy's land and got punched in the face for his troubles. <laughs> That's funny. So that was kind of the flip side of that. Yeah. Wow. Crazy. The last two questions next is what is your favorite film, book, TV, or other piece of media about journalists and why? scoop and i'm sure you get that a lot but um i don't actually end up watching or reading a lot about journalism because I, in a way i kind of like to get away from it and learn other things but scoop i just loved so much because you know the old expression that the the things you don't want to see being made are sausages and legislation and sometimes you don't want to see the news stories being made and i love that evelyn wall was able to poke so much fun at especially British journalism, which does more than American journalism, play it sort of loose and fast with the facts. And, you know, these guys basically ginning up this war, it's hilariously funny. It's very vicious about journalism, partly rightly, but I, I just love the book. I think it's very, very funny and has great British sense of humor. Yeah, yeah. It's been a while since I've gotten that one, but uh, two or three people have mentioned it. I read it. I, I was surprised how much, even though it's so old, it still like resonated a bit with me today. Like any time you've been to one of these situations where it turns into kind of a media circus, where just like exactly a million journalists descend on this small place, like it 
it really is a lot like he describes. And like one person goes off and everybody's worried, like, what are they doing out there? What story are they going to get? Like, <laughs> right. What have they got? I mean, and uh, yeah, yeah. So that was funny. And then the last question is, qualifications aside, if you couldn't be a journalist, what job would you do? Now I would probably say design gardens. <laughs> but honestly, you know, since I love learning about things, I, I love being a journalist. I know I could do other things. I'd be interested in other things. I'd love to teach history. Um, I'd like to be a university professor, an architect, a landscape gardener, you know, work at a museum, be a historian, do films, write screenplays. But I feel I have the greatest job in the world. I felt it in Latin America. I feel it now. And I love our profession. And I have to say, I always defend journalists because I feel very privileged to have worked and met the people that are in our profession. I think by and large, journalists are really great people. And I'm proud to be a journalist. Um, I think it's a shame that we are getting such a bad rap in society. I think journalists are very caring, hardworking, honest people that try their best to do a good job. We don't always make it some less so than others, but I think by and large, I really like us as a group of people. I like my colleagues. I think they're good people. So I'm proud to be one. And I'd like to end by just saying that um, one of our kind is being held in Russia, my colleague, Adam Gershkovitz. So I just hope we can all keep him in our thoughts and prayers and uh, pressure the U.S. government to do what it can to get him out because he has uh, been unfairly jailed. Mm, yeah, that's a good note to end on. Okay, well, uh, that's all the questions. So I'll just wrap up by saying thanks so much for coming on the podcast, David. Thank you so much for having me. It's really a pleasure. I feel I, I talked your ear off, you poor thing. Um, <laughs> but uh, I really bared my soul, but, uh, but I hope it's useful. No, it's been great. It's been great. I really appreciate it. That's our show. Thanks for listening to my conversation with David Luno, UK Bureau Chief for The Wall Street Journal. I'll post links to some of the things David talked about in the podcast description and also on our show page, foreignpod.podbean.com. If you like this episode of Foreign Correspondence, please subscribe to the show in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts, and give it a rating. Beyond that, it would be a huge help if you write out a review saying what you think about the show. It helps get the podcast more attention. Follow or tweet at me on Twitter at at foreignpod, on Facebook, our pages, facebook.com slash foreignpod. Above all, if you know someone who might like the podcast, please recommend it to them. The show is produced and edited by me. Our music is a track called Love Chances by Makai Beats. There's more information on that in the podcast description and on our show page. Please look for the next episode toward the end of the year. Until then, I'm Jake Spring, and this is Foreign Correspondence. Correspondence.